pray. Doesn't seem to matter, Lord, what I feel like when I come to church on Sunday morning. By the time we finish singing these glorious rich truths, I am ready to worship and to preach. And so I thank you, O Father. Thank you. Thank you for the glory of your word. Thank you for the glory of your Son, who we know by your word. I pray, Father, that you would now take the gospel of your Son and make it real in our hearts experientially. May it burst into life in the heart of one who is here this morning or some who are here this morning who are religious and maybe even conservative and maybe even members of this church. Redeem them. Save them. And others, Father, I pray you would call to repentance and others and all of us that you would fill us with joy because of these wonderful eternal truths which you have not only revealed but you have purchased them by the blood of Jesus and his righteous life. Help us now, Father, to grasp these things and to bring them to bear on our own lives and relationships with you. Be glorified now, Father. We ascribe the glory do your name, and we ask you now to speak. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Give us ears to hear. Make the soil of our hearts rich and ready to receive the seed of your word and to bear much fruit. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I guess we can start by turning to Romans chapter 1. It's going to take me a little while to get there, but you can start moving in that direction. I had intended on beginning to preach through Paul's letter to the Philippians today, but a couple of weeks ago, the elders contacted me while I was out of town. And uh, since this is October 29th, uh, coming up 29th is Reformation Sunday. And since it is the 500th anniversary of uh, Martin Luther pounding his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, uh, and inadvertently, I might add, launching the Great Reformation, the elders asked, would you please teach or preach three messages on the doctrines of the Reformation? Um, And I came away from that thinking, how do you preach the Reformation? Where do you start in thinking about how to preach about the Reformation? It's like being assigned in one hour to teach on God, the universe, and other things. You know, it's just a massive topic. And add to the challenge that I want to teach these doctrines in a way that's not boring. I don't want to lose you on these things. And so that's the challenge of preaching much of the time, getting the point of the text right first, primary importance, explaining the doctrines that come out of the text. And we'll talk about that primarily next week when we talk about sola scriptura, that would be scripture alone. And then doing all of that in a way that helps you keep on track and not lose you and have you thinking about the game that you're going to be maybe watching or not watching later this afternoon. 
And so that's the challenge before us this morning. And so here's what I want to do. I want to I take you through point by point here. And the first point is simply an introduction to Reformation. What is the Reformation? I, I don't want to assume that everybody in this room, even though you are a product of Reformation, if you are not Catholic and you are in church, you are a product of the Reformation whether you know it or not. Uh, but you may not understand what the Reformation is. And we don't have a lot of time to talk about that. And I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about that. But I do want you to have some grasp on it. And so let's do point number one, introduction to Reformation. This is an important topic for us, Reformation is, uh, because uh, of a number of reasons. First, the first reason is that by studying these core doctrines of the Reformation, we will gain a richer understanding of the gospel. And I would dare say that many of you, if, we, if I asked you what is the gospel, you would say something about sin and something about Christ and something about the cross and something probably about grace. But I hope by the end of this, you will understand the gospel more fully. Secondly, it reminds us of our history. Calvary Bible Church did not spring into existence out of a theological or historical vacuum. We are the product of a long history of men who fought and personally suffered for the truth. And we dare not take that for granted. But unfortunately, in our day, the American church and even Bible churches, good evangelical churches, have forgotten their history. They've forgotten the history of the church. They've forgotten the historic doctrines of the church that come from the word of God. And, it, and now it's all about happy, slappy application and um, relational interaction. I'm all for happy. I'm all for relational interaction. But doctrine is first. The truth of Scripture is first. We need to be reminded of what those truths are, those bedrock, foundational doctrines. Otherwise, we will drift. Third, from time to time, people ask me, why do you call yourself a Reformed church? Why is Calvary Bible Church on the internet? When we looked for it, it said various things about the church, but it said Reformed. What does that mean? I get that question a lot, and let me just answer that one right now. Reformed points back to the Protestant Reformation, which God brought about through the preliminary work of men like John Wycliffe, John Huss, William Tyndall, uh, these men who laid the foundation, other men as well, but those are some of the key players in pre-Reformation times. And then God did this work through men like Martin Luther, starting with Martin Luther, and then John Calvin, John Knox, William Booser, Philip Melanchthon, and others who were credited for igniting the Reformation and spreading the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation is one of the greatest historical events, not only of church history, but of, listen, human history. There really hasn't been anything like it, and we don't have time to talk about how the Reformation has affected every aspect of society, even, even the architecture of your typical evangelical church. The reason this pulpit is here in the middle and not over there somewhere, is because of the Reformation. The reason the pulpit is here and not the altar, as it was called in 
Catholic Church. Why is that not here? Answer, reformation. And so many things about the way you think about work and the way that you think about your neighbors and the way you think about government comes out of reformation thinking. And so it is no overstatement when Philip Schaff, the renowned church history scholar, was no overstate for him to say that um, in the case of the Reformation, it was the greatest event in history. Here's what he says. The Protestant Reformation was the greatest event in history. It was an unprecedented movement, a far-reaching, history-altering season when the invisible hand of God impacted not only individuals and churches, but entire nations and cultures, even America. The Reformation was a series of strategic events involving many people in many places. At its core, it was an attempt to bring the church back to the singular authority of Scripture and the purity of the gospel. And when the gospel and the scriptures found their proper place, once again, it transformed society. Transformed society. Um, I'll resist getting ahead of myself. There's some wonderful things I want to share with you, but I better wait until next week. Standing at the headwaters of the Reformation was no less than Martin Luther. Now, most of you know that in January, I offered a a one-hour message here on Martin Luther to kind of get the, the year started off. This is Reformation year. It's been 500 years since all of this began. And so I, I won't be um, re-preaching the biographical message on Martin Luther, but there are some things that I want you to know. If you want to hear that message, you can get on our website or on the app and, and look in biographies and you'll find that. But Martin Luther stands at the front. He stands at the crossroads. It bears noting, however, that Luther had no intention of igniting this massive shift in church history. It was not his goal. Nor did he desire to break away from the Catholic Church. He had no desire to become something other than Roman Catholic. In fact, when it all began, Luther wasn't even what we in modern parlance would say was born again. He was lost. He was a monk, become priest, but he was lost. Even when, and this may surprise some of you, even when he nailed the 95 Theses to the door, he was lost. He didn't know the Lord. He he had wonderful things to say about the Pope. That would all change. Um, He honored the Pope. He honored the magisterium. He, He didn't want this to be a schism. Schism was the worst thing that could have happened in Luther's mind. Though he was a monk and later a priest, like so many others who came after him, yet he did not know the Lord. When he nailed the 95 Theses on the door, he was nothing but a young Catholic monk who wanted to instigate discussion and debate about some necessary reforms, things that he thought needed to change. God's plan, however, was to use this simple monk to change the world. So let this suffice as our introduction to Reformation. Secondly, explanation of justification. The doctrine of justification. This is where we want to start. 
Um, the elders have asked me to preach on the doctrines of the Reformation, and there are five. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and all of it to the glory of God alone. And if you read on this, they're going to be in different orders, depending on who's writing and the approach they're taking. But sola fide is the Latin word for this. Faith alone. Faith alone. It was not invented by Martin Luther. He merely rediscovered it. In fact, centuries before he came on the scene, it had already been taught by no less than Clement of Rome, Justin Martyr, St. Augustine, just to name a few. More importantly, however, the doctrine of sola fide, or faith alone, was taught by no less than the Apostle Paul. That's where it came from. So important was this doctrine, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So important was it that the Reformers said commonly that this was the doctrine upon which the church will either stand or fall. The Reformation itself would either stand or fall on sola fide, which stands for what? Faith alone. That's right. Or, more precisely, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Um, this, is, this is the central doctrine. And so it seems to me that even though Scripture is where we find it, it's, in my mind, most helpful that we start with this, and then next week we will go back to see where Scripture falls into this. Martin Luther's rediscovery of, all, of this all-important spirit-inspired doctrine, um, it didn't happen in the hallowed halls of theological education. It didn't happen in the debate hall or in uh, writing of books, theological inquiry. Rather, and this is significant, the Reformation started, it came out of, at least as we're talking about Martin Luther, personal crisis. This was a personal issue with Martin Luther. He was having a serious personal problem. The kind of problem that you would come to your pastor and ask for counsel. What do I do about this? I can't think. I can't move. I can't, I can't work. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. What do I do? Help me. If you've ever read anything about Luther, you know that in his early years, he was debilitated by an overwhelming sense of guilt and despair. Guilt because he was plagued by a piercing awareness of his own sin and desperate because he saw no way to ever free himself from it. This was his problem. I am guilty. And there's no way for me to become unguilty. How is God not going to cast me into the flames of hell? You see, the impetus for the Reformation was not some deep, cryptical, theological argument. Rather, it began with a very personal question. Namely, how can a young man find relief from guilt and a relentless sense of the condemnation of God? And not just a young man, but a young woman, a middle-aged man, middle-aged woman, an old man, old woman. Luther knew his Bible 
And that was the problem. He knew his Bible. He wasn't even technically a Bible student yet, but he knew Latin. He understood. He was one of the few who would actually go to church and understand what was being taught. He knew of the Old Testament stories. He knew that God was a righteous and holy God. He knew from biblical history that God judges sin. As far back as the Garden of Eden, God demonstrated that he was intolerant of unrighteousness. In the narrative of Noah, God saw that the thoughts of men on the earth were only evil continually. And so he sent a worldwide flood and killed every man, woman, and child on the planet, except for eight, Noah, his wife, and their children. He knew of the story, no doubt, of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, in the book of Leviticus, when it came time for their ordination. They were being ordained into the ministry, as was their father, Aaron, But they decided to improvise a little on the worship that had been prescribed by God. They offered to the Lord strange fire, and God, right in the middle of this glorious day, struck them dead. Luther knew that. He knew about the day that David joyfully was bringing the Ark of the Covenant up the mountain of the Lord to put it in its place in the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And as it bounced along on a cart, a man by the name of Uzzah, seeking to steady the ark of God, reached back and grabbed hold of it, and God struck him dead. Luther knew these stories. This was the God that Luther knew. He was a fearful God, an angry God, a dangerous God who demands absolute perfection of his people and absolute righteousness upon penalty of death. And by the way, that's who Adam and Eve were, right? They were perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. God created them to be perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. It was sin that marred all of that. And that was the whole problem. And moreover, the prescription for addressing one's sin in the Roman Catholic system was inadequate. In Luther's mind. What you did was you, you did penance, you attended mass, you went to confession, and then after all of that, you would end your days in death and spend an, an undetermined number of years having your unholiness burned away in purgatory. And Luther was devoted to doing everything the church required. He was a monk. He became a priest, but alas, these remedies did nothing to alleviate his conscience. They did nothing to relieve him of the condemnation that he knew that God would pour out on him and was already doing. He saw himself as a sinner to the core. In his cell in the monastery, he would fall into fits of terror and thought of God's justice and righteous condemnation upon him as a sinner and being cast into hell's torments. And by the way, I realize that this is no longer um, the steady diet of Christians in America anymore. We don't like the thought of hell. I mean, if we didn't think we'd be called a heretic, we'd probably go along with Rob Bell and say, you know, that hell's really not taught in the Bible. 
But you know what? Martin Luther was not wrong about these things. He understood the implications of what the Word of God taught, even though he didn't know it anywhere near as well as he one day would. But he saw himself rightly. He understood God rightly, not completely, but rightly in terms of his righteousness and holiness and his holy demands on people. That's why it was so shocking when Jesus said, you must be righteous even as your heavenly Father is righteous or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, Luther didn't tiptoe around that. He didn't try to come up with new novel, some novel explanation why, that is, why Jesus is not saying what he is saying. He just believed it. And it cast him into despair. The Roman Catholic system offers a means of dealing with one's guilt and sin. The requirement was that a monk would confess all of his sins to a priest. It was a simple matter of meeting with your confessor and saying, Father, I have sinned. I've engaged in lust, or I got angry with a fellow friar in, in the yard today while working, or I complained about the gruel in the dining hall again, and, and the breakfast, and, and the father the father confessor, the priest, would hear the confession, grant priestly absolution, and assign some small penance to be performed, and that was it. My mother tells me she grew up Catholic, and, and she would do this. She would, she would go to the, the priest and say, bless me, Father, for I am about to sin. I'm going to go to the movies with my girlfriends, and so tell me the penance now, and I'll do it after. And, uh, and that was perfectly acceptable. Perfectly acceptable. The whole transaction would have only taken a few minutes and normally did, but not with Brother Luther. Luther knew he couldn't go a day without sinning. He could hardly go an hour without sinning. He could never be satisfied with the results of a superficial confession and trifling acts of penance. He was determined to leave no sin unconfessed. And whenever he entered the confessional, he would stay, not for minutes, but for hours, every day. And then, just as he was leaving the confessional to return to his chores, he would, ah, he would remember one that he forgot, and back to the confessional, and he was driving his confessor to distraction. And they would tell him, come back when you have a real sin to confess. How could a sinner ever hope to be justified in God's sight? Luther knew this wasn't doing it. It didn't work. In Luther's mind, in Luther's mind, God was, was not one to be loved, but to be intensely feared. In fact, looking back on those years, Luther would write later, I myself was more than once driven to the very abyss of despair, so that I wished I had never been created. Love God? <laughs> I hated him. End quote. Some have speculated that Luther was suffering from mental illness. It's crazy. The fits he would have in his cell as if he, were, he had rabies or was possessed of a demon. 
But I think R.C. Sproul is right when he says, I don't think Martin Luther was crazy. I think Martin Luther was the most honest Christian that ever lived after the first century. He really understood something about the character of God. He understood something about the righteousness of God and about the justness of God. And the more we understand how righteous God is, the less we can de- deceive ourselves about ourselves. Now, you know, if you've read anything on Luther, that Martin Luther didn't remain in this condition. In fact, he experienced a profound and radical change. Radical relief came, transformed his life. In fact, he experienced what uh, I mentioned earlier he didn't have. We wouldn't call him born again. What brought about that change in a word? Justification by faith alone. All of this, I I lay all of this before you because I want you to understand how important this is. And I want you to feel the gravity of it. And I want you to wrestle some in a deep way with the holiness, the righteousness, the majesty of God. Yes, he is for us, but he is not to be trifled with. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. What brought about the change in Luther's life was his study of Paul in Romans. And we don't, we don't have time to do a full exposition on Romans. You know my history. We don't have time to do a full exposition on a single verse in Romans. But it was a single verse in its context that transformed Martin Luther and then the world. So he studied Romans, the writing of the Apostle Paul. In his own words, here's what Luther explains, and I want you to look at verse 17 because this is the verse he pinpoints. Romans 1.17, he says this, I was angry with God. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that very place, Romans 1.17, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted of me. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context Okay, class, context is king. You never understand a text unless you understand its context. Meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it. Now, what's the it? The gospel, verse 16. In it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written Now, this reads a little different than yours. He who through faith is righteous shall live. Or your version may say, the just shall live by faith. Or if you have the ESV, it reads, 
For in the righteousness in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now I'm going to explain that. Actually, I'm going to have the Apostle Paul explain that. But listen to how Luther responded. Before this day, Luther had always assumed that when Paul spoke of the righteousness of God, he was speaking about the inherent righteousness of God by which he judged sinners. That intrinsic righteousness of God. And here's the problem. He knew himself to be unrighteous. And yet he knew God to be absolutely, eternally, infinitely righteous. So, how can there be any good news in the gospel that reveals the righteousness of God to people who are unrighteous? Notice the context. Verse 16, the gospel. Luther understood the language. He understood that Paul was saying, this is good news. And yet the word righteousness, all he could think about was condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. Because God did throughout history what he always did with unrighteous people. And he knew he was next. And so his conclusion, this isn't good news. The worst, this was the worst news possible. But then, as he studied the context, he suddenly realized that Paul was not talking about the righteousness that is indicative of God's nature and being, but rather the righteousness that God bestows upon one who believes. It is not the kind of righteousness that a, that a man has in himself, but the declaration of God whereby he pronounces the sinner righteous because of Jesus' righteous life and bloody death. And it's a righteous life and bloody death on our behalf. It is substitutionary. The word justification means to declare or pronounce righteous. I put this in your notes so it would be clear. The Westminster Longer Catechism defines it as an act of God's free grace. And we'll talk about grace alone. It's just key here. An act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. In the book of Romans, Paul shows how all of this comes together. First, he tells us the end, where he's going in verse 17 of chapter 1. And then in the chapters following, he gets under verse 18. And explains the rich truth, the theology, the true truth of God, as Schaefer would say, behind the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so in Romans, Paul's explanation. Now watch this. In Romans 3, we only have time to kind of do a survey here. I'll pick out the important things, and then you can study this on your own. Romans 3 he affirms that all men are unrighteous. So if you're not on Romans 3 yet, flip the page. If you think you're good, 
uh, God thinks differently. <laughs> Verse 11. Do you think you're righteous? Do you think you're righteous enough? Paul says, there are none righteous. You say, well, I'm in the exception. And Paul says, no, not one. No one understands. Listen to this. No one seeks for God. You say, I'm a seeker. No, you're not. No, you're not. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's God's declaration of the nature of man, the nature and practice of men. And then Romans 4, he shows that the precedent for justification by faith alone, that is justifying these Romans 3 people, causing them or declaring them just, there is precedent for it. And it's precedent from the Old Testament. For in Genesis, Paul will say in chapter 4, verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So Paul is saying, listen, there's nothing new here. Luther was saying, there's nothing new here. I go to Paul. Paul says, there's nothing new here. I go back to Moses, who tells us about Abraham and what God said to him. Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But it is back in chapter 3 that Paul explains how the doctrine works. Look at verses 21 through 26. Now, with all of this foundation... This paragraph out of the book of Romans should make sense to us, but we will take the time to walk through it verse by verse. Let's just read it first. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, what's the next word? Propitiation, say it with me. Propitiation, I'll explain it in a minute. You gotta know this word. Propitiation, say it one more time. Propitiation, good. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by what? Faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. And here's why. Here's why it was necessary that God demonstrate that this act is a righteous act. So that he might be just and the justifier 
of those who have faith in Jesus. That the implication here is, it is possible for a rogue judge to declare someone righteous who is unrighteous and should not be declared righteous. And on no basis should be declared righteous. And the Roman Catholic Church actually comes back to this doctrine, justification by faith alone, and says it's a legal fiction. And in response, we go to the text and say, Paul didn't think so. In justification by faith alone, God is not only the justifier, he is just in being the justifier. It is right for him to do it. He is doing it in a way that meets all of the necessary qualifications of his law relative to sinners. Now, let's walk through this, okay? You hanging with me? We doing okay so far? Okay. Everybody take a deep breath. Here we go. We're going in deep, right? We're all in the deep end on this. We're all in the deep end. But let's walk through it. Think about what Paul is saying. In verse 21, I'm I'm summarizing here. No one achieves righteousness by obeying the law. No one achieves righteousness by obeying the law. Um, When you stand before God on the last day, you will not be granted entrance into heaven because your good outweighed your bad. I hear this all the time as I talk to people. If you were to die today and God were to say, why should I let you in my heaven? Um, you know, I, I mean, I've done things wrong. I'm really not that bad. I think, I think my good way, my bad. Stop thinking that, because that's wrong. Remember, there is none righteous. Um, chapter 3, verse 11. There is none righteous, no, not one. And verse 20, look at verse 20, chapter 3. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Doesn't matter how many good works you do. Doesn't matter how much law keeping you get really good at. By the works of the law, no flesh is justified. No man, no woman, no child will ever be justified by God because of your righteous works. Your righteous works. Look at verse 22. Here Paul, I think, is saying, There is no distinction between how Jews are justified and how Gentiles are justified. Again, verse 23, all Jews and all Gentiles are sinners. No one will be counted righteous by virtue of their ethnicity. Uh, The Pharisee says, we are sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, if God wanted sons of Abraham, he could tell these rocks to become sons of Abraham and they would become sons of Abraham. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. No one gets in, no one is justified by God by virtue of their ethnicity or their nationality. Uh, I'm I'm amazed, uh, not regularly, but more often than I would ever have imagined when I ask people, do you believe you're a child of God? Do you believe you're going to heaven? Do you believe you're, you're born again? Yes. On what basis? Well, I, I have a Bible, and I live in America. Really? Um, it's amazing what people put their hope in. But not by, 
not by nationality, and not by acts of righteousness. Now, verse 24, justification, Paul is saying, is always an act of grace, the grace of God, given as a free gift and received by faith alone. Again, the Westminster says, faith is the alone instrument of justification. Those who are declared righteous by God are justified by faith alone, not faith plus works, not faith plus ethnicity, not faith plus anything. It is received by grace through faith, and that alone. Verse 24, this gift of justification was purchased or redeemed for you in Jesus Christ. How? Verse 25, by God putting him, that is Jesus, forward as a, what's the word? Propitiation by his blood. Propitiation by his blood. God putting forth Jesus as the propitiation. This is critical. There is no justification, declaring righteous, without propitiation. So let's understand this word. The word propitiation is is not one that's in modern parlance these days. We don't talk about propitiation in normal conversation. It means, here's the definition, propitiation means to appease or satisfy a king's wrath by a gift or by sacrifice. To appease the wrath of a king. To assuage his anger. In this case, a just and holy anger by a gift or a sacrifice. And so you see, man's most terrifying problem is that God is righteous and we, all of us, are unrighteous. We are sinners. We are created to glorify God, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it wasn't an, oops, I fell short. It was, I suppress the truth. I'm suppressing the very thing that I should be clinging to. The fact is, every sinner is the just object of God's holy and righteous wrath. And so Martin Luther was in despair because he understood what you and I don't even think about. Furthermore, it would have been wrong for a judge to simply declare the criminal innocent contrary to evidence. And the evidence is there is none righteous. Justice must be served. In God's case, he is the ultimate righteous judge, And he never, ever, ever permits sin to go unpunished. It must be punished. For sinners like you and me, God doesn't merely let us off the hook. If you think that grace is is just letting you off the hook, you don't understand the gospel yet. You don't understand the price. You don't understand what it took God to rescue you. And therefore, you don't understand the love of God. You don't understand the mercy of God. You don't understand the grace of God. Nobody gets off the hook. Rather, God pours out all the fullness of the measure of his infinite wrath upon Jesus. 
in our place. All of our sin is laid upon him so that all of our sin is paid for. All our sin is laid on him. And as Isaiah said, by his stripes we are healed. In other words, through the propitiation of Jesus Christ, God demonstrates, chapter 4, verse 26, that he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And I want to add one thing here that doesn't fit in this particular flow of Paul's thinking, but so important for us. It is not just the propitiation in his blood. There's another component of this, and we've talked about it many times. It is not only Jesus' death that saves. There must be real righteousness for God to declare us righteousness. Hence, when Jesus came, he lived for 33 years fulfilling all righteousness. So that in chapter 5, flip over, he gets to this in chapter 5, verse 10, when he says this. This is the Apostle Paul, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his, what? His life, his righteous life. Martin Luther called this righteousness an alien righteousness, not because it came from Mars, but because it came, in his Latin term, extra nos, which means from outside of us. It is not a righteousness that I build. It's not a righteousness that I achieve. It's not a righteousness that I merit. And it's a righteousness I desperately need and I don't have and I can't earn. It has to come to me by grace from outside of myself. And the only way it can ever be applied to me is if I receive it by faith. And now, in chapter 5, verse 1, it makes sense that the Apostle Paul would say, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have, what's the next word? Peace with God. We have peace with God. That's what Martin Luther was looking for. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we keep reading in Romans and we come to chapter 8, verse 1, and we read, Therefore, in light of everything that I've said about justification by grace alone, through faith alone, by the merits of Christ alone, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is out. Peace is in. When Martin Luther understood this, here's what he writes. Here, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. He saw the gospel all over the place. Why? Because for the first time, In Martin Luther's life, he understood the gospel. 
he understood the gospel. And so we've seen an introduction to Reformation, an explanation of justification. I'm running out of time. A couple of illustrations of justification. Turn with me to the book of Philippians. This is Paul, again, except now he's sharing something of his testimony. <clears throat> Coming to faith in Christ and his evaluation of it and himself. And he's warning, look at verse 2 of chapter 3, look out for the dogs, look out for the evil doers. If you have a King James, it probably says evil workers, evil doers. What he means by that is look out for those who say that by doing the law, you will be declared righteous. And he said, listen, if anybody, if anybody could be declared righteous by works and by privilege, ethnicity and, and privilege, it was me. Notice what he says, verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. The people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had gained, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now listen to these words. And be found, I take that to mean by God, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. This, beloved, is justification by faith alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Not faith plus works, not faith plus in, uh, ethnicity, not faith plus Privilege, and privilege, privilege is so important for you. To think of the privilege that you have. You, so many of you grew up Christian. You're in a good church that preaches the word of God. There aren't a lot of them anymore. And you could be here trusting in the privilege of growing up Christian or growing up in a good church or growing up with this this flow, this tide, this current of, of righteousness and grace teaching and Bible preaching, and you think on the merits of that, my spiritual privileges, I will be swept right into heaven with the rest of my church family, and it isn't true. And you may be just as lost as Martin Luther was in his religious current, just as lost as the Apostle Paul was in the religious tide that he was drifting with. 
It is not about spiritual privilege. It is not about ethnicity. It is not about law-keeping. What are you clinging to? Not what do you know, but in your heart, what are you clinging to for salvation? It can only be Christ. And you must receive him by your faith. Your faith, not your parents' faith, not your church's faith. Not your grandparents' faith. And so we've seen introduction, explanation of justification. Here's Paul's example. Let's, let's show one more testimony. Luke uh, chapter 18. And this will be quick and we'll be done. And some of you are saying, praise the Lord, we're almost done. And some of you are saying, keep going, keep going. I tend to go with the latter, but the nursery workers are with the... Never mind. <laughs> Luke 18, 9 through 14. This is, I think this is glorious. 9, Luke 18, 9. He also, that is Jesus, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Okay, so we know where this is going. It's the same thing, same issue. And treated others with contempt. So here's the story. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Uh, Let me stop there. One who we might be tempted to think is worthy of entering God's presence. And one who we are sure is not worthy of entering God's presence. They're they're in the temple. Temple area. And the... And... um, The Pharisee, verse 11, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house, what? Justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted will be declared righteous, will be brought into and adopted into the family of God. Now, why do I say this is glorious? I say this is glorious because of something you can't see in the English. But if you were looking at the Greek Bible, you would see it. When the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, Be merciful to me. The word be merciful to me in the Greek is the same root word that Paul uses for propitiation. (laughs) The only way he knew that God was angry. He knew what Martin Luther knew. And what we don't like to think about, God was angry because of sin. 
And he knew it, and all he did was beat his chest. God, somehow, and he's in the temple where the sacrifice, where the gifts are being given, where the, the lamb is being slain. God, be propitiated toward me. And it's not a sinner, it's the sinner, as if he thought he was the only sinner on the planet. God, somehow, be propitiated toward me. And the most amazing thing apart, once you understand that, and then you back up and say, who was telling this story? The person who was telling the story would be the propitiation for this man's sin. That is glorious. Do you understand, beloved? This is not the totality of the gospel, but it is the essence of it. And it is for you, if you will have it. You see, my friend, God is still an infinitely holy God. His law still demands perfect righteousness. If you will have any hope of being acceptable to God in the last day, it will not be on the basis of things you have done or things you have chosen not to do, but on the basis of the finished work of Jesus. His active obedience, his passive obedience of being allowing those men to nail him to the cross. He did that for you. He bore the curse of God for you. It is only the finished work of Christ alone in your place. And the only way to receive that is with the empty hands of faith. As God graciously enables you to believe. And even that belief is a gift from God. For from him and through him and to him are what? All things. To him be the glory forever. Beloved, listen. A way has been provided for every sinner to be declared righteous in God's sight. It is offered to you by grace, and it is received by faith alone. Let's pray. Lord, I'm tempted to push back and say, such things are too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. I can, can hardly understand it. But Lord, you've made it so plain. The only reason I struggle to understand is because it is so big, so glorious, and yet it is simple to understand. Any child can understand that God so loved the world in this manner. God loved the world. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You sent your son as the propitiation for our sins so that by grace, through faith, we can become children of God. Lord, you know every Sunday we come and our elders pray, God save. God, send your spirit to awaken someone's heart to their need of what you have provided for them in Jesus and gloriously save them.
Lord, would you do that now? Or would you grant repentance to some who are, who are playing fast and loose with sin, though they are true believers and are headed for disaster and the denigration of your name? Father, grant them repentance. Help them to see the glory of what you have done, not just in the past, but its effects and application in the present. May they joyfully repent. Restore to them the joy of your salvation because of the gospel. Oh, Father, we praise you and we bless your name and thank you in the name of our Savior, our propitiation, our Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus. Amen.